Alrighty, everybody, welcome back. Today is August 12th, and it is long overdue that we get you another episode of Basin Breakdown. It might be August, but we're talking about July. Got a whole bunch of big news coming for you, some of it developing pretty quickly, so if it seems contradictory, that's usually because a story came out at the start of the month, right before developing a bit more in the end. So, let's get right into it. We'll kick it off here in our home state, Colorado, with the DJ and Nybrera formations. So, breaking news. Well, I mean, not really breaking anymore, but Chevron has announced a deal to acquire Houston-based Noble Energy, the second largest oil and gas producer in the DJ Basin, for $5 billion. Chevron expressed interest in Noble thanks to their, quote, low-cost, proved reserves, and attractive undeveloped resources, end quote. This deal will expand Chevron's shale portfolio with 336,000 acres in the DJ Basin alone. There have been a few asset trades by this point, but this is the first major acquisition to go down since the coronavirus pandemic took hold of the world. Noble investors will receive a small portion of Chevron shares, and the total value of the deal with debt comes out to be $13 billion. That's a pretty sizable chunk of change. Chevron was set to acquire Anadarko before it got into a bidding war with Occidental, but hindsight is 2020. Hmm, ironic. And it looks like Chevron got the better deal in the end as Anadarko's portfolio is rather comparable to Noble's. This transaction is expected to close in the fourth quarter of this year. Yeah, you said $13 billion. That's a pretty penny, but compared to what Anadarko got acquired for? much, much better. Thank God they lost that bidding war. Oh, absolutely. And it kind of really, especially after seeing all of the issues that, you know, Occidental's been kind of put through in recent months, it seems like, you know, this was A, you know, the better choice, B, you know, kind of like they say, sometimes holding out really does work. And then speaking of holding out, it looks like within the state of Colorado, we're going to have to hold out some ballots from the elections until, well, a further election. Governor Jared Polis claims to have established a truce that would prevent ballots from both the industry and activists from entering the 2022 and 2020 elections. In an opinion column, the governor expressed his distaste for the returning ballots from both sides that he claims waste everyone's time and money. The ones we've talked about pretty frequently on this podcast are... What, it's got a whole bunch of names. Senate Bill 181, Proposition 112. Yeah, exactly. The list goes on and on. Keeps coming back every year. This seemingly forced compromise, if you can call it that, will prevent the industry from pushing a restriction prevention ballot and an economic impact statement ballot. The activists will not be able to push their ballots regarding setbacks, local moratoriums, and increased state oversight. While those involved in the industry have not made many comments, the activists from Colorado Rising and other independent organizations say they are not part of the governor's agreement and still plan to introduce the aforementioned ballot measures in 2022. I think it's important, Tavis, that we you know kind of keep people to know the reason that they're holding off on these 2020 and 2022 ballot initiatives is because they're trying to really get those local governments to take advantage of that Senate Bill 181. So it's not that they're just trying to completely ignore it. They're just really trying to get their previous initiatives to get, you know, that full effect. Of course, it's only been around for a little bit. And I think it's great that local governments can decide within their jurisdiction whether or not they want to allow it and to what extent. But something I found interesting about this, I did not know that the industry would propose activists would have to follow their bills and propositions with an economic impact statement. That's a pretty good form of self-defense because if they have to say setbacks at 3,500 feet, 
and then it will decrease our state's revenue by $12 billion. Well, of course, the state regulators aren't going to pick that up, but it, it was an interesting self-defense. Yeah, absolutely. But another thing I find really interesting is, I mean, kind of seems like Governor Polis is taking away, you know, you know, how bills and laws are supposed to be introduced in this country, kind of what we're based on. It's a little strange, a little strange for sure. So we'll see how the people accept that one. That's it for Colorado. Next, we'll take it to North Dakota to the Bakken Shale play. First, Native Americans are attempting to sue for millions in royalties, potentially millions. The Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation is suing the United States federal government in an attempt to secure land and collect mineral royalties in a dispute over ownership of the bed of the Missouri River flowing through the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. The MHA Nation claims that there is at least $200 million in oil and gas royalties that the Department of the Interior failed to collect in the name of their people. In 2017, a court reversal stripped the MHA Nation of mineral rights in the land beneath the bed of the Missouri River after a dam was constructed, flooding that area and kind of uh, adding more water than land than they were used to. After decades of court reversals, the MHA Nation is putting its foot down and demanding that the Department of the Interior is held responsible for the theft of mineral and property rights and compensates them financially. It seems that there's been some pretty big shifts in respect to Native American land rights lately, but we can definitely get into that more later once we make it to Oklahoma. As if North Dakota wasn't struggling enough, pipelines and differentials only add to the vast buffet of problems. Although production is depressed to low levels, those still left producing are scrambling to find transportation solutions for the oil that is brought to the surface now that the Dakota Access Pipeline has been shut down. There is a temporary stay on the court order, but the future is grim. About 300,000 barrels per day of North Dakota oil would need to move out of the state by rail if the Dakota Access Pipeline is forced to remain closed and the capacity of other pipelines becomes maxed. This will lead to a massive increase in costs. The Dakota Access Pipeline costs between about $7 to $9 per barrel, where rails to the West Coast cost $10, and to the East Coast and Gulf Coast, somewhere between $11 and $12 per barrel. These small differences per barrel truly add up. I mean, think about where costs were just a month ago. It's only going to serve as an additional barrier for many producers in the region. If the pipeline fiasco wasn't enough already... Differentials pose a massive threat to the companies operating in the Bakken. When WTI was at $28 per barrel, North Dakota Light Suite was barely at $14 per barrel. It just seems like these guys can't win. And a lot of the news with this pipeline, I mean, all pipelines in general at this point, is flip-flopping back and forth so quickly every day. So, of course, a month old ages pretty quickly with what we've seen lately because just a day ago, uh, a judge is telling the Army Corps of Engineers that he needs to be briefed by the end of this month, although they're asking for two months. So we'll keep you posted as we move forward, but do bear in mind, this month is a news old, so a lot of stuff is already changing since then. Now let's take it up to Pennsylvania and talk about the Marcellus Shale. As more and more producers decide it is uneconomic to bring crude to the surface in areas like Pennsylvania, the state seems to be a bit squeamish about its budget. It seems that a lot of activity in the region has shifted from ENP to refining. In order to accommodate this business, Governor Wolf expressed his support for legislation that extends millions of dollars in tax breaks for those turning natural gas into either fertilizer or industrial chemicals. 
Although he vetoed a similar bill in March, he said this version will limit the scale of the subsidies available and ensure construction workers building qualifying plants are paid union-scale wages. That's pretty nice. This 25-year plan is set to start in 2024 in order to give the largest four facilities the ability to draw a little over $6.4 million each year. In order to qualify, the facility must have a capital investment of $400 million and provide at least 800 jobs, which includes construction. While the Republicans are happy to develop the natural resources that their state gave them, the Democrats continue to cry foul play, citing concerns for air quality and the environment. Now, I think this is just fantastic. It seems like they keep four top-tier positions, and as long as companies are competing with each other, they can draw in more funds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, basically a recent shift from you know producing this oil and natural gas to you know processing it, which, I mean, yeah, we're going to need more oil and gas in the future, but we also need more and more people to process it. So it's not like we're really you know taking anything away from the economy. Plus, you know, like you said, some of these products can be used for fertilizer. I mean, as we just looked up, you know, Pennsylvania produces a lot of mushrooms, apples, and Christmas trees. So, hey, I like all those things, so let's <laughs> keep it up. Although you have heard a lot of bad news about pipelines lately, here's a little bit of a good story. Small little happy story. The FERC has given the green light to the Lady South Project, which allows the construction of additional pipe to transport 582 million cubic feet of gas daily. The pipe will push gas from Cabot and Seneca to the Marcellus and Utica regions of Pennsylvania. It will also service demand markets along the Atlantic seaboard by the 2021 to 2022 winter heating system. The goal is to replace the dozens of coal plants to give way to cleaner and more reliable natural gas energy systems. This can be achieved by converting the existing coal infrastructure and power transmission utilities that already exist in the region. I love this. Using old infrastructure and pipelines with gas to replace the burning of coal. What's not to like? Reduce, reuse, recycle. I mean, it's, it's covering all, all the bases. You know, it's, you know, a, a more green alternative. You know, instead of burning coal, we're going to burn natural gas. Proven hundreds of thousands of times to be a lot more beneficial to the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And then they don't even have to go in and, you know, dig up a new pipeline. And, you know, if you listen to our previous podcasts that we released, you know, just this past week on, you know, pipelines, we talked about people opposed to the Keystone pipeline are worried about the, you know, construction and possible spills, all this, that pipeline's already there. You know, you're not damaging any kind of habitats already. I, I couldn't agree more, Tavis. I love this. Yeah, it's great. But even so, I give it ooh, three months until someone uses the Clean Water Act on it to try and stop it. But that is all we've got for the Marcellus. Hopefully they keep up on their pipelines and Christmas trees. But next up, Powder River Basin. We're looking at some tax exemption from the cowboy regulators. Wyoming tax regulators are looking for more ways to ease the strain producers in the state are currently experiencing as a significant part of the state's revenue is generated from oil and gas activities. The current proposed solution is a bill that exempts producers from paying tax until WTI prices reach $45 per barrel of light sweet crude and $38 per barrel for sour grades produced in the state. The Petroleum Association of Wyoming stated that it recognized the incentive price had to be high enough to not rob the state of too much funding, but low enough and near break-even price so that companies would be able to come back regardless of the incentives. This serves to alleviate the strain on existing producers and incentivize others to begin operations in Wyoming. The bill is still being deliberated, but this could be big news in the long term for both the state and operators. 
Now, I think this is cool. It's not binary. They've got conditions to meet. And once things get better, then it goes out of play. They've got to plan for beginning, middle, and end. I, I love it. I mean, I just want to shake the hand of the guy or gal that came up with this. Kind of like you said, you know, when operators in the region are shutting down and really hurting, they're saying, you know, they're incentivizing to come back. Like, no, we're not going to, you know, tax this until it gets to a certain price point. And beyond that price point, they know that those companies are making money. So that's when they say, okay, now you need to support your state that you're operating in. And I guarantee you nobody's going to be upset with this. No, but let's just hope it passes. One of those companies that has continued to keep operating is Tulsa-based Rebellion Energy 2 LLC. They announced the results of two new wells that they drilled in the Powder River Basin of Wyoming. The Diablo well, which targeted the Niobrara Formation and had a 24-hour initial production rate of 3,060 barrels of oil equivalent per day, the 30-day rate fell to about 2,000 barrel of oil equivalent per day. The sister well, Coronado, generated a 24-hour and 30-day rates of 2,283 and 1,798 barrels of oil equivalent per day, respectively. President and CEO Stacy Tarusio stated, quote, Our team's ability to execute at such a high level at this point in the basin's life cycle demonstrates the viability of these resource plays as both predictable and repeatable. The caliber of both our team and our assets is encouraging as we look to push development in the Powder River Basin, end quote. This definitely seems like a big gamble in these prices of, you know, low price environments where we're not seeing a lot of activity out there, but Rebellion appears to have pulled off a decent IP. Hopefully they can find someone to sell that oil to. And kind of like we discussed earlier, Tavis, Rebellion, you know, they're really staying true to their name. I love it. Oh yeah, they got some cojones. I mean, in this environment, drilling two new wells, I wonder what they've got going on, but I'm excited to see how it plays out. Speaking of big things, everything's just a little bit bigger in Texas, so let's pop on down to the Permian. Trump took time at the end of July to personally fly down to the Permian Basin to raise spirits and rally oil and gas workers against Democrats. Trump assured them, quote, We are telling the Washington politicians trying to abolish American energy, don't mess with Texas, end quote. These comments serve as both a policy announcement and a campaign speech as Biden eases closer to 50% in the polls. Accommodating his uplifting remarks, there were menacing statements about the, quote, radical left is trying to abolish American energy, destroy the oil and gas industries, and wipe out your jobs, end quote. As it stands, Biden is in support of the Green New Deal, which would ban all oil and gas drilling on federal lands, but mentions how he does not support a total fracking ban. With over 40,000 Texas energy sector employees unemployed, these messages could mobilize big changes in the way Texas votes come November. Especially considering just yesterday on the 11th of August, Biden announced his running mate, Kamala Harris. And uh, what did she have to say about oil and gas specifically? She's in support of banning all fracking activities. So kind of like we said, you know, with 40,000 Texas energy sector employees unemployed right now, that's probably about 40,000 people that aren't going to vote for you. Rather than agreeing, I've got a little bit of something about disagreeing. At the start of the month of July, New Mexico and Texas didn't exactly see eye-to-eye -eye how to handle gas in the Permian. While the EPA has taken a step back from flaring regulation, there is a question as to who and how will be pursuing it moving forward. Enter the Permian Basin and its two largest players, Texas and New Mexico. 
For New Mexico, state methane rules are inbound as Governor Michelle Grisham has pledged her administration will define nation-leading regulations by the end of this year. Many in the state feel that these rules are becoming a more pressing matter as federal rollbacks for the oil and gas industry continue to pour out of the White House. While New Mexico has been vocal about their plans, again, remember, this is from early, early July, Texas seems to have remained silent thus far. They hadn't taken action at this point. Historically, Texas has been pretty lenient with its flaring and emission laws. Federal laws were the biggest guideline they had, and many fear that Texas will see this change in regulation as an opportunity to have free reign over burning as much gas as they see fit. Fortunately, a few smaller companies and organizations have started coming together to promote the creation of methane guidelines for Texas, as they do want to retain their social license to operate. So speaking of promoting, uh, definitely check out our previous periodical and periodical podcasts on the impact of U.S. regulatory bottlenecks on domestic production. We do talk about, you know, the flaring rules in Texas. So um, like Tavis said, this piece um, about New Mexico and Texas is, you know, a little dated, but, you know, the, the rivalry and kind of, you know, upset is definitely still very prevalent. And then keeping everything in Texas, we're just going to move on over to the Eagleford, where things really aren't so hot. As if it wasn't bad enough already that the Eagleford had been eclipsed by its hometown neighbor, the Permian, the plague continues to plummet in popularity. Back in May, the Eagleford had fallen to 30 active drilling rigs, while the Haynesville Shale of East Texas and North Louisiana sat at 32. By the end of July, there were 33 active rigs in Haynesville, a one-rig increase since May, and only nine in the Eagleford. This is the first time there have been fewer than 10 drilling rigs in South Texas since the shale play was discovered back in October of 08. The newest development is the potential for the future. As if the gap was not already wide enough, no horizontal drilling permits were filed in the Eagleford between July 8th and 14th. In that same time, five permits were put up for the Haynesville shale between Houston oil companies Rockcliffe Energy and Sabine Oil and Gas. What's up with this mass migration? To, well, I shouldn't say mass. Five permits isn't that big. But why are people moving to the Haynesville? Are production costs lower? Is it proving to be better? You know, that's a, a great question. You know, Texas has always been so pro-oil and gas. You would think, you know, producers that have, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit before, have that social license to operate in those regions. You would think they want to stay there. They want to support those jobs there. But... I mean, there's got to be some additional information under the service that we're not finding here. I mean, five permits is still a significant number, especially when there was zero granted between the 8th and the 14th. So um, we'll definitely keep you guys updated on this story, try and figure out, you know, why are these companies kind of shifting their focus? But, you know, for the Eaglefords, you know, benefit, you know, we really, <laughs> really hope that, you know, these companies aren't totally going to abandon them. Speaking of hope, there's hope for Texas flaring. Although many have speculated that Texas would take little action to mitigate the increased flaring that it has seen in the last few years, the end of July showed that some initiative has been taken to better understand the problem. Flaring has gone down with 99.5% of the gas produced in Texas was sold in the month of May alone. But this is a result of COVID and associated price war with reduced associated gas volumes and regulators are looking to take advantage of the downtime it has afforded. Meetings were occurring in June between regulators and ENP executives as they discussed the best practices and strategies to reduce flaring, which was drafted into a document of incorporated recommendations for this new Texas State Task Force. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. 
If the rules were to be finalized in the coming months, there would be reduced flaring durations, incentives for ENPs to use updated flaring technologies, increased detail when requesting the need to vent, and increased compliance review. It looks like the new policies will pass as regulators and ENP executives have really come together with the common goal to reduce flaring and venting by 2025. In 2018, Texas flared more gas than the annual use of Arizona and South Carolina, and this flare gas went untaxed and unnoticed by the state. I mean, New Mexico was talking some mad garbage to Texas, but it looks like in a couple weeks' time, they got right on top of it. Yeah, I mean, kind of like we've talked about in our previous podcast, I really like these initiatives and these incentives that these oil and gas companies are you know, really trying to reduce those flaring volumes. It's good for the environment. You know, if they can actually sell it and people can heat their homes, you know, cool their homes, I guess, in Texas summer months, but use it to cook their food. I love it. But for every section and set of good policies, there's always going to be a few bad policies. It's just unfortunate that they seem to mostly be concentrated in California. And the latest to suffer from those policies, California Resource Corporation, most commonly known as the CRC, has recently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, which heralds in total restructuring. The goal of this bankruptcy is to eliminate more than $5 billion in debt and equity interests, along with consolidating its ownership of its Elk Hills power plant and another gas plant in Kern County. The company plans to continue the already hindered production that it does carry out during the process. The company was born out of Occidental and was immediately laden with debt. Even so, the company could still produce 132,000 barrels of oil daily in peak production times. These days, around half of its 17,500 wells now sit idle from coast to mainland. CRC has a strong goal to emerge from Chapter 11, although many watch on with skepticism on their minds. $5 billion is no small sum after all. And I gotta say, I'm a little skeptical too. I, I know a few people who recently became employed there, and it sounds like it's business as usual, full steam ahead, well, as much as they can. So I don't know how this is going to end. I agree with you on the skepticism note there, Tavis. I mean, business should not be continuing as usual right now. If, you know, you've got $5 billion in debt, you're having to file Chapter 11. At some point, someone needs to step in and say, you know, hey, how do we reevaluate our best practices so that we can continue operating in the state and continue to generate funds for the state and, you know, provide jobs for individuals in California? Speaking of funds and CRC, CRC is going to have to come up with a lot more funds. While CRC is beginning to go belly up, members of the Center for Biological Diversity urged the governor to intervene in the CRC bankruptcy to ensure that they set aside enough money for cleanup. CRC and its affiliates operate just under 19,000 wells, which would require an estimated $1 billion to properly plug and abandon. Quote, Bankruptcy proceedings like these endanger California because oil companies like CRC can weaponize them to dump their environmental cleanup costs on the public, end quote, claimed Catherine Phillips, the director of the Sierra Club California, one of the many groups asking that oil and gas industry put aside the full amount of bonds to cover up every single well. For the wells in California, it would cost at least $9.2 billion to plug and abandon everything and companies like CRC are already in the hole. A clear solution is not really on the table. So, to get this straight, she wants all companies, CRC included, who is $5 billion in debt, to come up with the collective $9.2 billion in funding 
in just-in-case funds to cover wells just in case they need to be plugged and abandoned if they are a potential threat. Yeah, let me just pull out my magic wand and create a bunch of money so that a what-if scenario can happen. It's uh, You say that, but that's the U.S. government does it. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, we've talked about this many times in the past. It's frustrating to see that, you know, these individuals just really aren't taking into consideration the what these actions that they're asking these oil and gas companies to kind of follow through with, what those implications truly are. Right. I mean, negative 5 billion, find another 9.2 along with the rest of the state. It's not possible. I mean, the best position is, yeah, oil and gas companies. But after that, what do you just, I don't know, chase them out of the state and then raise taxes to clean everything up yourself? Make your bed and sleep in it, I suppose. And then we are nearing the end of this month's episode, but one more basin to talk about, Scoop Stack, actually Oklahoma as a whole. We've only got one story for this section, but it is a big one. The U.S. Supreme Court has recently ruled that about half of the land in Oklahoma is actually designated as Native American reservation land. While this is a big win for Native Americans in Oklahoma, this is surely going to lead to a huge tangled ball of legal, regulatory, and tax problems within the state. Native Americans will now have more of a say in terms of the severance tax that may be owed, or in the approval of pipelines or any other production with their newfound regulatory authority. In the short term, the five tribes of Oklahoma stated that they were working together on a framework of shared jurisdiction to, quote, support public safety, our economy, and private rights, end quote. This could potentially be a beneficial thing for oil and gas, especially in the form of pipelines. This may provide the Native Americans with more of a voice when talking about the construction of said pipelines and other oil and gas production activity, and it might incentivize them in form of tax and other severances, which may be reason enough for them to allow continued operation on their lands. As much potential as this has to be good, it could just be as bad thanks to that taxation. Everyone will want a piece of the pie, and the state and feds are already eating their share. How do the tribes want to proceed in collecting severance as much of their newly recognized old property has oil and gas activity on it? As it stands, the tribes say that halting production is unlikely, but asking for some money from production is still on the table. Once the overlap of federal, state, and tribal issues are sorted through, it is possible that this could be the beginning of a new chapter of energy for Oklahoma, but time will tell if it's for the better or for the worse. I mean, starting with the better, this could be great for the entirety of the United States. This might stimulate a conversation of having these people involved in the decisions that are, well, going on in their land. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the benefits of this are, are definitely going to outweigh the, you know, the downsides, you know. We're bringing in all of these people's extra voice, you know. How should we operate? How can we work with you to, you know, really kind of have our benefits go hand in hand with your benefits? So I, like I said, I really love this, but I do want to bring up the fact that I actually have in the past, I worked for a service company. And let me tell you, dealing with, you know, kind of Native American issues can be quite the hassle at times. I remember we were working down in the Farmington, New Mexico area. And we were required to get some permits to enter, you know, Native American land. And I just remember uh, we were being charged approximately like $5,000 a pump truck just for a permit to enter their land. Um, and it's, it's a totally arbitrary cost. It's someone that just decides, yep, this is how much your permit's going to be. And every single individual has to have a permit, every single piece of equipment, every truck, every chemical. So, I mean, the cost of the job about doubled. And it basically came down to, you know, we had to go to the operator and say, hey, can you sort this out? Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do this job for you. So, and that's why 
I really like the benefits of this because it opened up that dialogue. It it forced us to go in there and, and have a conversation face-to-face on, you know, how can this be beneficial for both parties? And I think that's exactly le- what we're going to see here in Oklahoma. Are there going to be speed bumps on the road? Of course, there always is. When has there not been? But I definitely think that the dialogue that this is going to create is going to be incredibly beneficial. Kevin, you said it so eloquently that I don't think there's anything else I can add. But that is the end of this month's episode. So please leave us those reviews, those comments. You can go to our website, rarepetro.com, leave comments there. We're on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Leaving those reviews really boosts us up and allows other people to see this content. And if you want to reach out to us directly, you can contact me at podcast at rarepetro.com with anything. (laughs) Tell me what you had for dinner, what podcasts you want to hear, really anything, because we'd love to hear it. Hey, Tavis, make sure you share those dinner ideas with me. I'm really running out of cooking ideas here. I will forward them all your way, but that is the end. Thank you so much for joining us, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Mm